The word of God from 1 Samuel. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men in the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound and the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years." When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they told Dagon and put him so they took Dagon and put him back in his place. And when they rose early on the next morning, behold, 
Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Altogether, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you, Winnie. Would you please remain standing um, as we just commend this time uh, to, the, to the Lord? Heavenly Father, um, this is a strange story for us, and we would beg that you would give to us an extra portion of your spirit in these moments and illumine the eyes of our heart so that we would see you and see what you would have for us today. Lord, we need you. These um, things, your truths are spiritually appraised, and so we need your spirit. And we know that if we ask it, you will provide it. And so we ask humbly in need, recognizing our need and recognizing your generosity. Bless, Lord, the preaching of your word that we would know you. For we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. I'm Ronnie. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, I'm a senior pastor here. Um, we as a church just love to sit under God's word. And that was a long one. So I do encourage you to keep your Bibles open or if you have your handout. That was quite a passage. You've caught us. Um, recently, we started a new sermon series on First and Second Samuel. And the title of the sermon series is Searching for a King or Looking for a King. Well, why, why have we chosen that? Christianity has always been centered around this one core idea that God the creator is set on reversing and undoing the effects of the fall and making all things new. And that newness comes by God's king, his son, the son of God, who decisively undoes the reign of evil through his life, death, and resurrection. And you and I can enjoy that newness even now in this moment through our faith in this son of God, Christ Jesus, Christ meaning king. And more than that, only in relationship to this king can we experience the presence of God. See, the creator and God of this universe, he has unmatched power and unmatched holiness. Power that we can't even lay eyes or fingers upon without every atom in our body coming undone and obliterated. And to know God then, we must, can only come and we must come, must come through Jesus and Jesus alone. And indeed, we must know him. You must know what this king is like. And so to do so, what we're doing is we're digging back into the Old Testament. It's like we're learning about an origins story. And these ancient and strange and mysterious stories help us to know what we're looking for 
when we finally see Jesus. This passage that we just heard, um, the context of it was at a time in Israel's history before they ever even had a king. Uh, they were a nation without a king, and, and, and nations without kings are vulnerable and lost. Uh, without a king, uh, you are vulnerable to counterfeit rulers that would come and destroy. So before there was this king in Israel, there were these judges. And we talked about, you know, judges aren't people who wear black robes or anything like that. Um, these military protectors, these leaders. And the, the judge at the time was Eli, the priest. And he was serving at a time when the Philistines were threatening the Hebrews' very existence. Now, Eli had these two sons, Phineas and Hophni, and these guys... Y'all, they were absolute scoundrels. Well, in the middle of this conflict with the Philistines, both Israel and the Philistines have an encounter with the power and the presence of God. And in fact, this whole section in 1 Samuel from chapters 4 to 6 are helping us to understand how God's power is unmatched. And so what we're doing this morning is we're dialing into the first part of that section in chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. Now, what we're seeing is with Israel, what, what is it that they do with the power and presence of God? What do they do? They try to manipulate it. And then we see the Philistines. And what do they do with God's presence and power? Well, they try to manage it. And both manipulating and managing the power and presence of God are fatal. And so through these stories, we're going to learn about the power and presence of the future king of Jesus. So for you note takers, uh, as we study our text this morning, we have two points. First, we're going to look at this fatal impulse to manipulate God. And then we're going to look at this fatal impulse to manage God. So manipulate and then manage God. So let's begin with our first point as we study this text to manipulate God. Uh, every so often, uh, I go through my contacts on my phone to clean them out. Like, I have thousands of contacts, way too many contacts. Uh, but how a person is listed in my phone uh, says something about my relationship to them. So, you know, there's, of course, the generic listing, probably like most of our contacts. You have the first name and the last name. But then you have a few that don't have any name. They just have a title. So there's a contact in my phone that just says, Mom. That's my mom, you know? And Dad just says, Dad. And then you have this contact that says Pacifica Security. I don't know the guy's name, but he used to do security for my neighborhood in, the, uh, in Puerto Rico. Uh, then you have a contact that says La Mama de Carlos, the mom of Carlos. Uh, I don't know her name. This is like my son's friend Carlos, and, he, and she's La Mama, the mother, right? Uh, then you have Edwin, the sign guy. Uh, Edwin helped our church make some nice banners on occasion. Uh, then you have one. And man, I really wish I would have put more descriptors on one. I don't know who he is. A lot of ones out there, a lot of Johns out there, right? And then you have um, Ice and My Boo. Uh, they are connected to the same number. Ice, in case of emergency, is linked to my wife's number. And My Boo, also linked to Amanda's numbers, and I did it like that so that if I say, hey, Siri, call my boo, calls Amanda, right? 
So here's the point. Here's the point. Is the contact helps me to understand and shape how I relate to the person. Not unlike that, God gave his people a very specific way of relating to him. But all of this gets shored up when the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, gets introduced into this situation. And here's the backstory of our passage. It's important for you to know this. So God had commanded Israel to make an Ark, the Ark of God. An Ark is just a box, like Noah's Ark. It was just a waterproof box. So you have this box. It's four feet by two and a half feet by two and a half feet. And the lid is made of pure gold. It's sometimes called the mercy seat. And then on top of that, it's adorned with these two angelic creatures facing each other, sometimes called cherubim, all right? Now for us, we think that that's just a fancy piece of furniture. But for Israel, it was the single most important thing in their entire religious system. Why? Because Israel believed that the ark conveyed God's sacramental presence. Now, I use that, that term very specifically, sacramental presence. Um, think of it. On one hand, it represents and it signals God's presence. And on the other hand, it actually conveys God's real presence. Right? Think of like the bread and the wine. Right? It, it signifies the presence of, the God, of, of God, but in a real way, it's actually conveying his special presence, his real presence through the Spirit of God. Right? So it was understood that God was enthroned in the tabernacle above the ark, above these cherubim. And while God's presence is everywhere, of course, he's God, God manifests his special presence at this ark. Now, if this is so important to Israel, why did they lose it? How did they lose it? Well, there are these two brief case studies of how Israel tried to manipulate God's power and presence. So let's look at both of them. First, you have the elders of Israel. We see in verse 1, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. If you don't know much about the Philistines, they are like this for the time, technologically advanced, seafaring people, and they are fierce in battle. In their battle, their first battle, Israel was defeated. The Philistines killed about 4,000 people. And just as a side note, to make us strong readers of the Bible, you know, the Hebrews use numbers very symbolically in the Old Testament. So when you see the, the, the number 1,000, it usually is associated with one military unit. So 4,000 would be like four military units. So it's hard to know if in the text it's 4,000 people lost or four military units lost. Either way, Israel gets whipped. So in verse 3, the text tells us that the elders came together and asked, look at verse 3, why has the Lord defeated us? Did you hear the question? Not why did the Philistines beat us, but why has the Lord defeated us? This is a very human question. This is a very human question when you suffer loss or defeat. When you lose a job, when you lose a child, when you have this unmet desire 
Like, why does the Lord keep me from finding my spouse? Like, why does God allow it? When those moments of loss, it's a good time to take stock. Like, what's God showing you? Because it is the Lord. And so this question, why has the Lord defeated us, shows that the Hebrews have a right understanding of God. They know he is sovereign. They know he's in control. They know that he ordains whatsoever comes to pass, that no one can defeat God's people when he is with them. And although they have an accurate head knowledge, their response shows that there is this rupture between their head and their heart. And as a result, there's this breach in their understanding of the relationship. What they could have done is they could have fasted and they could have sought out the face of God in prayer. Lord, what do you want us to learn from you? What would you have us to do, Lord? How might we honor you? Our, Our lives are for you, Lord. That's what they could have done. They do none of that. They say, hey, go to Shiloh, get the ark, put it amid the armies, and let the ark's power save us from our enemies. The brain knows God's power, but their heart could care less about the relationship. And here's why they missed it, is the ark was a means of establishing the relationship. Uh, maybe, maybe that's a little abstract. You can think about it like this. Um, I pay for my son's cell phone, right? I pay for his cell phone. Why do I do that? Because I want him to use it to stay in touch with Amanda and me, right? When he's on trips or when I'm away, um, I want that platform to keep us connected. But if Micah were to stop calling me or to stop responding to my texts, if instead of having a relationship with me, he uses the phone to ignore me, uh, maybe he's too busy with social media to get back to his dad or something like that, then you know what I'll do? I'll stop paying for the phone. The phone is really about one thing, as far as I'm concerned, maintaining a relationship with Amanda and me. This is what the elders of Israel get wrong. They don't see the ark as a means of relationship. They could care less. They don't want to commune with God, but they do want the ark, his power. They thought, God is powerful. We will beat the Philistines on our own with this secret weapon. Because they know the stories about Moses and the presence of God against the Egyptians. They they know the stories of of Joshua and Jericho. They're They're like, this will work again, won't it? No, you cannot manipulate God And instead of 4,000 dead this time, verse 10 and 11 tells us it's 30,000 people, a slaughter, and the ark of God is captured. Just like I would take away my son's phone, God took away the ark. It was given to build a relationship, not to be manipulated or to obstruct a relationship. And I wonder, I wonder if this is how we see God. Like we only pursue relationship like when we need something, when we need his power and presence. And how would you know? How would you know? 
Well, ask yourself this. Does your prayer life ramp up when there is a death or death is near or when your marriage is failing, when your workplace is a little iffy, recession, uh, when your kid is rebelling? Does, does your life, prayer life just ramp up in those moments? I mean, why don't we regularly fall on our knees enjoying his presence for no other reason than just to relate to him? Or is God just Edwin the sign guy? You call him when you need a job done, but you're certainly not pursuing a relationship. You're not calling him to go out to lunch. Now, maybe you say, no, 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 come on, Ronnie. I'm in church here, right? That's not me. I go to church. I go to Bible study. I go to church-wide discipleship at least once every three months. You know, I do uh, churchy things, Ronnie. And maybe you do things that might look great at first glance. But I want to suggest it's still filled with this sort of fake righteousness. So if that's you, let's look at the second case study. You have Eli, the priest. He's the second case study for Israel's manipulation of God's power and presence. Uh, Think about it um, with me for just a little bit. Let's go back to the text here. Verse 12 tells us this one guy barely survived the battle. He came back to break the news of the slaughter, right? Verse 13, look there, says, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. Well, that that looks pretty good at first sight, doesn't it? I mean, this guy longs for the ark, right? Well, look at this really weird detail in verse 18. Everyone look at verse 18. It says, As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. In other words, he died because he was old and heavy. What's that about? I mean, is this just like weight shaming? What's going on here? No. So Israel has been judging for 40 years, and he knows that the ark of God was never to be used like that. Like, he knows it is wrong. But he couldn't stand up to his scoundrel sons, Phineas and Hophni. God is calling out Eli because of where he put his weight. Now listen, he's calling him out because where he put his weight, both literally and figuratively. So listen, the word honor in the Hebrew means to give weight to, to give weight to. So the narrator is doing this word play. Now, follow me, follow me on this a little bit, guys. Two chapters earlier, God says to Eli, this is chapter 2, verse 29. Uh, I'll read it for you. It says, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I have commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out uh, before me me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me, 
shall be lightly esteemed. And he goes on to prophesy the death of Phineas and Hophni. So what God is saying here, he's saying, why do you give weight to your sons? Because those who give weight to me, I will give weight to them. Those who honor me, I will honor them. Eli and his sons, this is what they were doing. There would be sacrifices brought to the tabernacle. They're the priests. They would take these sacrifices. They would cut out of it the choicest part of the animal. They would get the, the best cut, the sirloin steak. They would eat it, and then they would take the leftover carcass and offer that as a burnt sacrifice. So what they're doing is they're using their position to get the very best for themselves and then to give God the rest. In other words... They're manipulating God's presence and they use God, the ark, the whole system for their own indulgence. Eli thought very little of God's actual power and presence. This is why Eli dies alongside the 30,000 and his two sons. The minute he heard the news that his sons died, he should have known that the prophecy was being fulfilled Because God was doing exactly what he said he would do. And now listen, it's really important. The missing ark is not a problem for God, right? Like he doesn't need the ark. The ark is for us. God is still God. He is still utterly in control. He ordains all things. But what has changed is this. Without the ark, Eli is no longer a priest He doesn't have the tool anymore to indulge himself. His sons are dead, the ark is gone, and Eli's own personal glory is forfeit. Eli is condemned because he chose to put weight to his own waist instead of giving weight to God. And so the narrator tells us he was old and heavy. There's this tendency, y'all, to read these strange, ancient, but true stories and think they're just weird and an aberration. But the truth is, we're all following, falling into the same trap. We're not using an ark, of course, but we misuse God's power and presence as a means of getting things. Eli no longer has the means to get a fattened calf for himself and for his family. And that is what the ark provided him. The ark was a means of insulation, of protection, of indulgence. He gave weight to the stolen benefits of God's ark rather than giving weight and honor to God himself. They tried to oblige God to give them what they wanted, even in battle. That's what that was all about. And the thing is, y'all, is we have this tendency to treat God's power and presence Similarly, and what this is doing is creating this entire set of faux beliefs, this, these set of beliefs that are nestled in with the gospel itself, and they're, they're all mixed up together. We say, I, I, I will be obedient and, and baptize my children so that God protects them. I will faithfully go to church so that God gives me that big promotion. I will remain sexually pure so that God gives me a wife or a husband or or the family that I long for. I will make my business a Christian business. Then God has to bless it. 
And we're creating this entire web of false beliefs, of faux beliefs. And Jesus is starting to look more like a genie in the lamp who's just dishing out wishes. And that's not even the worst part of it, is that our children are starting to believe this lie. And then they leave our house with these faux beliefs nestled in with the gospel, and really sad things happen to them. Deep disappointments, because that's the real world. Because they thought, if I'm good, if I follow Jesus, God will protect me from these sad things. And then suffering and disappointment comes, and they feel betrayed by God in that moment. I did my part. You've betrayed me, God. And they walk away from the faith of their youth. We've all been using the ark, the power and presence of God, to give us what we really want. Our indulgences, our sirloin steaks, our dreams, our desires, our security. We love God, of course, but what we really love are these other things that make us feel secure, make us feel whole. And we give weight to our waste instead of giving weight to God. God is not beholden to us. He is absolutely free. He is free to disappoint us. And in fact, he will disappoint us if that's what it takes to show us that he will not be manipulated. God is not our cosmic butler. He is the Holy One a consuming fire. We are his subjects. Yes, we're sons and daughters, but we do not subject him to our desires. He subjects us to his for our good. And here's, what I, here's how I want to learn to help us to learn to pray. I want us to say, God, you and you alone are the Lord. By your spirit, Lord, I will not manipulate your power and presence for my own innocent indulgences, however innocent they may seem to me. May you do what is right in your own eyes, for it is for your glory, not mine. Teach me, Lord, teach me, I beg you, teach me to be content in your holy will, in your severe will, whatever it may be, because you alone are God. Let's shift gears. So we looked at Israel and their elders and Eli, and we saw their inclination to manipulate God. Now let's look at the Philistines and evaluate their inclination to manage God. Now here's the thing to remember about the Philistines. They know the God of Israel. Like, they know he's real. I mean, y'all remember what happened when Israel first was excited that the ark was placed in their camp and being paraded around, right? They started hooting and hollering. Look at verse 6 and following. It says, And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into their camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. And here's the point. The Philistines 
are not atheists. <laughs> they believe that Israel's God is real. See, in their context, as they understand it, the battle that they fight is a battle between their God and Israel's God. And at this point in the story, it would appear that Israel's God is the weaker God. See, in those days, it was common when you won a battle, it was the practice to go and take the religious relic and set it up in your own temple. That's what it meant. That's what it showed that you really won the battle. And that's what happens. Look, chapter 5, verse 1. The text says, The Philistines captured the ark of God, and then verse 2, brought it into the house of Dagon and set it beside Dagon. Now, you guys, listen. Get your brain around what happens next. There is not an Israelite or an Israelite priest for miles. The Philistines bring the ark of God into their temple, place it by Dagon. Now, Dagon is like this huge statue. Uh, he's this humanoid-looking man deity. Um, he's got like these scales around his, his body, sort of like a fish, right? There are seafaring people. Um, they thought that they had conquered Israel's God. And now Dagon is looking over the ark. All right? That's, how, that's, that's where we are. But then the next morning, they find him. And Dagon has fallen face forward, prostrate, as if he's worshiping something that Israel wasn't willing to do. So the Philistine priests pick up their deity because their God can't pick himself up. And they put him back, up, back in his place upright. Next morning, same thing, face down. This time, his head and his hands are cut off. His head represents his wisdom. His hands represent his strength. And they're all, the strength and wisdom of their God is cut down. God has defeated his enemy. He didn't even need anyone to do it for him. God defeated Israelites' enemies by himself. The Lord has defeated this deity because he will not share his glory. He's not going to share a temple or praise with a pagan god, with an idol, and he won't share it with you or with me. The Philistines brought Israel's God into their temple so that their God would manage him. I mean, they believe that, God's, that Israel's God is real. They just want him to be managed by their gods. And here we are. We believe that God is real and we invite him into our heart, but our heart are temples for idols. And we want God there, but we just want him to be managed, tame. There are a thousand applications and I know I've already gone long, but when are we going to allow God the creator of heaven and earth, to rule us? Must God cut off the wisdom and strength of our idols for us to listen? Our own wisdom and our dreams are so, so small that we would have the audacity to manage God by asking him to sit pleasantly alongside of our idols. It's like when Job starts questioning God's wisdom. You all remember this story? 
And God responds like out of a hurricane. And he says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? I mean, where were you, Job, when I set the foundation of the earth? Tell me, Job, if you have understanding. Speak now, please, I'm listening. Who determined the, the, the earth's measurements? I mean, surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Have you, Job, commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? I am convinced that there is a plague of small imagination about God. We believe that God's moral life is like inferior to ours. Like we read the Bible and we're like, yeah, I'm pretty much better than him. I have a morally superior view of the world than God does. We think we know best. We think we know how history should unfold. All the while, we really just want God to be tamed by our idols. And we're protecting those interests. Y'all, we are collectively losing our faith because our vision of God is so, so small. Family, the world is messy and chaotic and unpredictable. And we must fight to unshackle our imagination and don't attempt to manage God because that doesn't end well. God will be victorious. He will conquer all of his and our enemies on the final day. That's how the story ends. And he will be triumphant over the mess and the chaos and the disappointments and even death. This whole narrative is wild. It's wild. God, the one and only God, mighty and all-powerful, this God, in, this, in our story, he allows himself to be defeated and taken away by the, the Philistines so that they could conquer him. And they do by putting the ark into Philistine captivity. But you know how the story ends? This goes on in chapter 5 and 6. I'll tell you. After Dagon gets his head and hands cut off, sicknesses start breaking out all over Philistine camps. Everywhere the ark of God is, Philistines are getting sick. And they get so overwhelmed by the ark of God, they don't want it anymore. They put it on a cart, they hitch it to two cows, and they just send it off into the wilderness. It doesn't actually matter where the cows take the ark, they just can't be with it. God is conquering the Philistine armies all by himself. He doesn't need help. And guess where the cows end up? That's right, they end up back in Israel. The ark returns back to Israel by itself. No special operations mission necessary. All God needed was himself. God was victorious. Now listen closely. Because this story is preparing us to find the king that we are all searching for. See, later in the New Testament, we're told that God would leave heaven and earth and enter into the battle for men's hearts, the battle for earth. And he would allow himself to be defeated and taken away by Rome 
so that they could conquer him. And so they did by hanging on a cross. And he goes into captivity to sin and death. But on the third day, on the third day, the witnesses go to the grave, which is a temple of death of sorts. And they find Jesus victorious, triumphant. All God needed was himself. Jesus was victorious. Your God cannot be manipulated or managed. Bend the knee. Bend the knee. Jesus, our King, is victorious. Don't miss him when you're looking for him because that's what it'll, he'll look like. Amen? Amen.